This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. We do welcome you to Harvest, uh, guys. We, we are a family of Christ followers, and uh, we recognize that we are uh, stronger together than we are individually, right? And so we have chosen to link arms together. Uh, our gathering, we call it Harvest. And we're a family of Christ followers that have joined arms together to fulfill God's purposes in the world. And, and, and we do. We meet in community groups throughout the week. And we encourage you to be involved in community groups. Uh, but we love coming together on Sundays and worshiping the Lord together corporately. When we do come together corporately as a, as a body... Um, as I say every week, we are a small expression of the body of Christ. I'm going to talk about that a little further on today as we complete Ephesians chapter 1 today. But uh, guys, we are, we are just a, I was thinking about how as, as Church of the Harvest, we are a community group in the body of Christ is what we are. We're a small group that gathers together and uh, we choose to serve together uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus. If you're part of the Harvest family, what is our vision? Our vision is to... Make, grow, and equip followers of Jesus to fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And we do that through community, discipleship, and outreach. That is what we are all about. And in our metrics, we know whether or not we're being successful at that as, by looking to see whether or not people are coming to Jesus. Because if we are, as a church are making, growing, equipping followers of Jesus, those followers, those people are going to be making, growing, equipping followers of Jesus as well. It multiplies. Disciples reproduce disciples. We've been talking this year about our identity and, and our responsibility in the body of Christ. Those who are Christ followers, those who have repented and surrendered to the lordship of Jesus in their life. And, and as I say, every time, you know, we, we, we live in this world that seems to, be, seems to be shaking right now, but we are not of this world. We serve a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has given, his word, given us his word that never changes. Thus, we don't have to be shaken no matter what happens. Amen? Uh, five weeks ago, we started a series on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We know that Paul was in prison, and the Holy Spirit moves on his heart to, to write this letter to this, this church, these Christ followers in the city of, of Ephesus. And, and we know that he's, he's, not, he's not addressing problems in this letter that he's writing He's, he's pointing out and teaching and, and reinforcing to these, these, these Christ followers who they are in Christ. And, and that's the first three of the six chapters. And the last six chapters are basically he gives them simple application of that truth in their everyday life. How many of you know we need simple application of God's word to use in our everyday life? God's word speaks to every area and every facet of our life. So, so Paul's writing this letter to, he said, who did he say he was writing to? The saints in the church, right? He's writing to the saints. Who are the saints? They're the holy ones, set apart, sanctified, uh, serving, surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. But it doesn't say just any saints. What does it say? Anybody remember? The faithful saints. The faithful saints. They're the ones who are all in for God, devoted, serving the Lord with their lives. And so we read chapter 1, and in the last couple of weeks, we read verses 3 through 14, uh, which we sent, like I say, we spent the last two weeks discussing. And if you remember, I told you that in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are, it is one sentence. It's, it's one thought. Now, that doesn't work very well in English. And so it's broken down into four sentences, and we broke it down over a period of two weeks, and we probably could have done a, uh, a whole year conference on it, but, uh, but we, we didn't feel that to spend that much time. So uh, somebody say praise the Lord. Anyway, so we went on as we discussed this in verses 3 through 14, we talked about how before the foundations of the earth, right, before the foundations of the earth, the Father arranged for all spiritual blessing to be provided for you, held in the person of Jesus until the day of redemption. Before the foundations of the earth, we talked about how we, were pre, we are predestined. We don't freak out over that word. It means pre-designed. It means preordained to adoption as sons and daughters of God. And, and I told you last week that as believers, we were predestined through the Father's foreknowledge of our willing choice to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, we talked about how our choice is the foundation of our predestination. It doesn't eliminate, the predestination doesn't eliminate choice. God is all about free will. He himself has free will and he values that. He made us in his image. He gave us free will and he values that just as much in us. 
So because of Jesus, we have redemption and we have forgiveness. And we talked about wisdom and we talked about prudence or good sense. And all this is according to the riches of his grace. He makes, it said, also said, we talked about how he makes known to us the mysteries of his will through his word, by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as Pastor Bob talked about last week, thank God for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what seals us. It says the Holy Spirit of promise seals us. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. So when the fullness of time comes, we can be assured that he will gather us all together in him in the fullness, right? And oh, and I love the the last thing I want to mention was I, I love that Pastor Bob mentioned too that God didn't do this. He didn't do all this for us because he felt, felt sorry for us. It wasn't out of pity. It said, we read it, it says it several times. He did it according to his good pleasure. This is what he wanted. This was his will. And so all this Paul writes uh, to describe to this, this thriving church in Ephesus the Father's plan. It's the Father's plan from before the foundations of the earth all the way into eternity wrapped up in verses 3 through 14. And so we move on. As we close chapter 1 today, I told you I was going to close chapter 1 three weeks ago. And oh well, it is what it is. As we close chapter 1, Paul ends with a prayer for the faithful saints. And so for the remainder of our time today, I want us to break down this prayer. I want us to look at this prayer that this was Paul's desire for us. And, and, and yes, actually, I, I do say us because while, you know, I, I did mention that obviously this was written to the Christ followers in the church of Ephesus. We know that many copies have been found of this from the same time period that did not have the name of the church of Ephesus on it. It was copied and sent out to many other believers in the known world at the time. But how many of you know there are not two different churches called the early church and the later church? We are one church. We are one body. That means it is written to us. That's why every week I say we're a small expression of the body of Christ. We don't badmouth another church that declares Jesus as the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. How many of you know we don't have to agree on the non-essentials? That's the essential. So we're not badmouthing other churches and other ministries and other gatherings of believers because we're all family. Collectively, we are all the church. We don't, guys, we bless Brookside Baptist and Hope Baptist and Great Commission and Cross Point and City Church and what are they called? Compel Church. They just changed their name. Sorry. We bless them all because we're part of the same family. We are a small community group in that family. You get it? Okay. So this is God's word for us and this was Paul's prayer for us. So we need to break that down and look at it. So, we're starting in verse 15. If you're following along, if you got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And, um, and if, you, uh, if you have a mobile device, you can go to the YouVersion Bible app and hit more and hit events. And you will see uh, the notes are already there for you. So, here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints... I, Paul, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So we're going to leave, like, because we're breaking these down verse by verse, we're going to leave them on the screen until we hit the next one each time. But I, I, want you, I want you to look at this for just a moment because, guys, one of the first things I notice here, Paul didn't begin praying until he heard about their faith and their love for one another. Seems kind of backwards to us today, uh, but this is when he, he's sitting in prison, he hears about what's going on in the church of Ephesus. He hears about their faith in the Lord. He hears about their love for one another, and he begins praying. It's kind of interesting because it's kind of, like I say, it's kind of backwards. What, what he saw them doing was fulfilling the great commandments, what Jesus said, love God and love people, right? It, it, that sums up the law. He sees them doing that. Now, it, it's kind of funny because when somebody gets their life in order, a, a, a Christ follower in the church, maybe somebody who's backslidden, when they get their life all in order, a lot of times that's when we think we stop praying. But it really shouldn't be the case. We pray for somebody all backslidden. They finally come back in. They get their life together, and we move on. Okay, that prayer was answered. Thank you, Jesus. We move on to somebody else. 
But really, we need to look at Paul's example. I would argue in reading this and a few other passages in Scripture that we need to pray more for people who have brought their life into alignment with God's will than we needed to before. We need to be lifting them up. You guys remember in Luke when Jesus said that he prayed for Peter? And he said, I pray that Satan doesn't sift you like wheat. He's praying for one of his disciples, the one closest to the Son of God. He's praying for him. How many of you know that many of the attacks we experience in life, those attacks don't come because of what we're doing wrong. Many times they come because of what we're doing right. If you're not experiencing any attacks in your life, I encourage you to examine (laughs) how much you're doing right in life. Because you're going to get the enemy's attention, right? When you're doing what God's called you to do. And so we need to begin to pray for those who have brought their life into alignment with God's will. So Paul hears about the faith and the love that the church had, these Christ followers had in Ephesus. And in verse 16 he says, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly in the New Living Translation. There it is. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. So Paul begins thanking God for them. And he not only prays for them, it says that he prayed for, is praying for them constantly. Constantly. Going into the next verse. What did he pray? What is his prayer? This is what leads into the prayer. This is what he's praying. Starting in verse 17. He says, my prayer is, and it's a long list of things, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first thing he mentions in this prayer. Now, he says his desire is that God gives us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, when we hear spirit, spirit of, a lot of times we immediately, our mind goes to the Holy Spirit. But uh, an easy way to figure out who this is or isn't is this is the King James. Well, it's the New King James. They always capitalize any reference from God. Is Spirit capitalized? So who is this not? This is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is more talking about our spirit. And so he's talking about our spirits, and God wants our spirit filled with wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, we talked about a couple weeks ago how wisdom and revelation, wisdom is a byproduct. It's a, it's a byproduct of the input. Remember we talked about input and output? It's, an, it's, an, it's a byproduct of the input of knowledge of the Word of God in our life. Hopefully, it's what comes forth as a byproduct of the Word of God in our life. Remember, we are never told to ask God for knowledge. Getting knowledge is 100% our responsibility. We have to crack open God's word. He's not going to whisper it in our ear all night long. We have to crack it open and we have to read it, right? We got to get it down within us. We are told to ask for wisdom and revelation. And he will give us that wisdom and revelation as we continue to fill ourselves with his word. Those things come out in response to the knowledge that we have brought in. Does that make sense? Input and output? Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6. If you look at this, it says, Wisdom and knowledge will be the the stability of your times and the strength of your salvation. So here in Isaiah, he puts wisdom and knowledge together. It says it will be the stability of your life, the strength of your salvation. But wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Wisdom is input. uh, I'm sorry, knowledge is input Wisdom is output. Wisdom is the correct application of knowledge in our lives. We take in knowledge, but we produce wisdom. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us to be diligent. We're to be disciplined and eager, eagerly taking in the word of God in our lives, growing in knowledge. But if you look at it, James also tells us that if you lack wisdom, what do you do? God said to ask, right? So as we do our part, God will bring revelation and wisdom as we ask. So Paul prays and he says, I pray that God will give you, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge that we are taking in from the word of him. Into verse 18, he says that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We need to spend a few minutes on this one because really verses 18 and 19 are kind of the theme for the rest of this prayer that Paul prays. And, and, and verses 18 and 19 tell us 
three things that he wants, as he said there, the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened to. And here's the, here's the three things. I'm going to give these to you real quick. He says uh, these three things. He wants us to understand the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and then in verse 19, we'll get to in a second, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. These are the three things that Paul is praying that our eyes would be opened and our, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened to, to understand the, the, the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And when you look at this, interestingly enough, you know, you look at these three things, the first thing Paul mentions is the hope of our calling. How many of you know that's future? We talked about hope. Hope is always future. So hope is future tense. And then he wants us to understand um, the riches of our inheritance. That's present tense. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. And then the third thing he wants to understand is the power of God that raised. What tense is that? Past tense. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. He has past, present, and future in there. This is what Paul is wanting us to understand. And so Paul says in this prayer, he prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened as, as, as we get this spirit of, of, of wisdom and revelation. And, and so looking at that again, it says the eyes of your understanding being awakened. Uh, many theologians believe that the word understanding is maybe not the best translation of this word. Many believe that really um, eyes of your heart would be a better translation of this. The eyes of, of instead of understanding, the eyes of your heart. Uh, that, saying that, that, that your heart would be enlightened, illuminated to this revelation. And, and clearly, if you look on and look at it, he's talking about our soul. This, this, is, this is our mind, guys. So, I need to mention that, I hope you realize that, that enlightenment, illumination, revelation, we think of these things as, as, as very, very spiritual, but how many of you know that these things happen in the mind? That's where revelation occurs. We think of this great spiritual thing in our spirit. It's not in our spirit. It's in our mind that revelation, illumination, enlightenment occurs. When someone's talking about God and they say something that makes you stop and go, whoa, that's really good. That's right here. Your spirit didn't all of a sudden just come alive. That was, that was right here. And I, we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a second. But in verse 17, we're told to have a spirit filled with wisdom and revelation. But then verse 17 tells us that through this, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our mind would be illuminated. So guys, understand that revelation occurs when the wisdom of God, which is already in our spirit, it, it, it bursts forth into our mind. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Suddenly we're aware of it. This wisdom of God, this revelation that we didn't understand before. It's into our natural mind. The, the enlightenment or the illumination or the revelation occurs when our mind comes in alignment with our spirit. We already knew it in our spirit, but it finally hits our mind. That's why somebody can say something we've heard a hundred times in our life and all of a sudden it hits us. A light bulb goes off and we go, oh, Lord, I see it. It's here. Does that make sense? This is the eyes of our heart. So back to verse 18. As the eyes of our heart are illuminated, the first thing that he tells us he wants to understand is the hope of our calling. The word calling, interestingly enough, is the same word. Y'all see it here? The hope of our calling. Calling is the same word. If you go all the way back to verse 4, where it talks about how he chose us before the foundation of the, of the earth. Chose us. It's the, same, it's the same word as calling here. In verse 18, it says, it, it's, it's telling us that there is, there is a day, there is a time coming that he's referring to as the hope of our calling. Romans 8 tells us that this is the day of, of, of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies. On that day, we will be in heaven. How many of you are looking forward to that day? What a day that will be when we're all gathered together in eternity. But we will stand before God 
And guys, even our bodies will be holy and blameless before him, just as our spirits already are. Does that make sense? Yes, no? (laughs) Maybe I can break it down a little further. Now, you guys know we live in two worlds, right? The spirit realm realm and, and and the natural world. If you have repented and you have truly surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, then you are currently standing before the Father holy and without blame, right? That's your spirit. But how many of us us know our natural body is still here on the fallen earth, right? And there is a day coming when things will change. These physical bodies as we know them will be gone. We'll be given a resurrected body. A body that is not governed by earthly laws and limits. And they will be incorruptible. And we will stand before the Lord, holy and blameless, spirit, soul, and body. Amen? So, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians and in Titus, it talks about the catching away of the church and being, this being the, the, blessed, the blessed hope of the church. And how many of you know that this, this life... This life is very short, but the, the world, people in the world have nothing more to look forward to in the days to come, but we have a great hope. For us, the best days are ahead because the final redemption draws near. So we have many people in the world today that are so terrified of death, but we as believers should never be. People are paralyzed in fear over so many things. Now, I'm not saying that I want to go home early. (laughs) Mainly because I know the Lord still has things for me to do, just like he does you. Uh, So, um, you know, I'm not going to just be stupid and reckless. I'm not going to get tired of it one day and decide heaven's better and throw myself off a bridge, okay? (laughs) I'm going to fulfill God's will for my life. And when it's my time to go, I'm going to be ready to go and it's going to be a glorious day. But as we look forward to the end... Guys, there should be excitement before us. We should be looking, as we look at the end of this physical life, as we look forward to the death in this physical life, there should be a stirring within us like we're about to leave work and everything behind for the vacation of a lifetime, except a thousand times greater. We should be anxiously anticipating that day when we stand before him. But verse 18 tells us more than just about our future. It also tells us about what we have today, even in the fallen world. Now, everybody loves to talk about how great heaven is, and it's, that's 100% accurate, absolutely. But here's the thing. I talked about a few weeks ago how God knows no time. Remember that? How he is present uh, everywhere, all the time, at the same time, throughout time, simultaneously. So... Today is just important to, is important to him. It's yesterday and tomorrow. And he is present in all those places at the same time right now. He is timeless. And his promises are timeless as well. His promises, if you have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, his promises are very real in your natural life today. People receive Jesus and they think it's all about heaven. No, God. It's not just about heaven. You're part of a new family the moment you surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the inheritance belongs to you. The promises are yours. If we stand in faith, we will see God's promises in this natural life. We can pull those promises out of the spiritual realm right here into our natural realm and see them manifest right here. Looking again at verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. And then look at this part. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Paul is praying that our eyes would be opened to the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the family of God. Guys, this is huge. We, we have to come to the understanding that all of our needs in this natural world, every last one of them, have been supplied according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how God's riches cannot be exhausted. 
How you know we cannot bankrupt God? He has set up an account for you that cannot be bankrupt. And many times we think about the riches of his glory, but we picture it in heaven. But it says, it's talking here about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now generally, when we give into the kingdom of God, for instance, talking about giving, whether it's financial or whether it's serving, whatever it may be, we know, we know the promise of the Bible. God's promises say that when we give, it shall be given unto us, right? How many of you know that that giving back unto us when we receive, that generally happens in the natural. God uses people. He uses situations. He uses different things. It's in the natural that those things happen. Give and it shall be given. He has promised to supply for us in this lifetime because he has invested in the riches of the saints and provided all the needs of the body of Christ so that we can accomplish his purposes in the earth. Again, he didn't leave us high and dry and empty-handed and say, hey, go save the world and leave us with nothing. He gave us everything. It's all possible through Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. It's our inheritance right now. So what else does Paul want our mind to be open to? Talked about the hope of the calling. Um, in verse 19 again, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Guys, there is so much in these two verses right here. And I, I want us to break it down for a minute. But the first thing I want you to understand before we go back into verse 19 is power or variants of power are mentioned several times in this. And I want to give you four Greek words that we commonly translate power or some variant of power, okay? So one word in the Greek that we almost always have translated in our Bibles, power is the word dunamis. How many of you have heard of dunamis? Dunamis means inherent power, or it means power that is stored up within something. It, you've probably heard, it's where we get the word dynamite, dunamis. We look at a stick of dynamite. It's when it's sitting there, it's not doing anything powerful, but there is a power stored up within it. And we don't want to be around when that power comes out, right? Dunamis, it's an inherent power, a power that is stored within. It's the same power that comes upon us. Remember Pentecost? Same power, same word, dunamis. Number two, the second word that we translate power, or some variant, is inaria. That's supposed to roll the R. I'm not good at rolling R's. Inaria, it means outward or overt power. So this is an outward expression. When that dynamite explodes and we go, that's power, that's inertia. This is the example I read was uh, you got a bodybuilder. A bodybuilder can stand there and be massive in front of you and go, wow, he's powerful. Okay, that's dunamis. You just see it within him. You see that, he, that there is a power within. But then when he puts his fist through the wall in front of you, inertia, outward expression, there it is. You see the outward expression of the power. Does that make sense? Number three. The third word we translate power, some variant, is the word kratos. It means ruling power. Kratos is where we get the word democratic, which means rule of the people. So that's where we get this word that we translate power. And then you got the last one, which is iskus, which means endowed power. It's a power that's given to somebody because they stepped into an office. They didn't have it one day. The next day they stepped into an office, and now they have this um, Iskus, this power, okay? So here's the interesting thing if, as, you look at verse, as you look at verse 19, all four of these words, all four of these Greek words are in verse 19, and they all refer to God. And really, if you look at different versions of the Bible, verse 19 looks different in almost every version of the Bible because it's so hard to translate. In English, it's, it's so hard to translate from Greek because these, these words in English, power basically means, you know, kind of the same thing. We don't have different translations for it, but the Greek, you know, breaks it down so much further. So, but if you look at it, look back at verse 19 again, if you look up there. So it says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? That's, that's dunamis, stored up power. Um, power toward us who believe according to the working. This is an area. This is that outward overt power, working. Uh, the working of his mighty, that's kratos, mighty. That's, this is that ruling power. And then the last word again we, is translated power, and that's iskus, which means endowed power, okay? 
So looking at it again, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he did what? He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Guys, there was a day in history when all of God's power, his inherent power, his outward, overt power, his ruling power, his endowed power, it all came together and worked together to fulfill one great purpose. What was it? Raise Jesus from the dead. It all came together in that. Every facet of God's power was on full display at the resurrection of Jesus, and it changed everything. We see in different places in Scripture where God uses his power. We see initially right at the beginning, we see him create, uh, create the universe and, and create the earth. And, you know, uh, Psalm, 8 tells us that, Psalm 8 tells us that when God created the universe, it says that he used his fingers to create the universe. That's a big God. But if you go on and you look in Hebrews, uh, Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 1, it said that he used, it was the work of his hands that he created the earth. Now, what has more power, fingers or hands? <laughs> Example I read was try doing, try doing push-ups on your fingertips and then try doing it on your hands. Which one do you have more power with? <laughs> your hands, right? I would present to you, I believe God used more power in creating the earth than he did in creating the universe. God created the heavens. We know that's in, Gen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that's... All we know about that, we don't, we don't really know much more about his creation of the heavens, but we know that he worked and he planned and he took his time to intricately detail and create the earth and everything within it. Man and woman, he created to take dominion over the earth. God made man in his image and created him to take dominion and to rule and reign over the earth just like God was ruling and reigning from the heavens. And I, I talked about a couple weeks ago how Earth is a mirror of heaven. Earth has trees and rivers and mountains. Guess what? The Bible clearly describes heaven has, has mountains and trees and rivers. It has it all because earth was created as a mirror of heaven. And yes, we, we jack things up. I don't know how much earth looks like heaven today. But, but we were created, earth was created as a mirror image of heaven. And, and we know that whatever we, as, as followers of Jesus, whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. But we see God, we see his power being manifest as he creates using his fingers and using his hands. But then if you go to Isaiah 53, back to Isaiah 53 in verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message? Now, this is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? We've gone from fingertips to hands to arms. Now, the theme of Isaiah 53 is Jesus on the cross redeeming us from sin and, and actually specifically sickness, sin and sickness in Isaiah 53. And, and so from this point, we see God using his fingers. We see him using his hands. Now we see his mighty arm. And the Bible says that the arm of the Lord brings us salvation. Guys, I believe it took more for God to redeem us than it did to create the universe and to create the earth. Why did it take more power? Well, I don't believe that there was any opposition to God when he created the universe and created the earth. But when it came time for him to redeem me and you, all the power of death and hell and Satan came against him, right? And so he flexed his mighty arm, right? Right? Colossians 2, verse 15, you've heard this. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard. It said, when he, being Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Guys, Jesus did this. Why did he do it? Well, he was sinless. He certainly didn't need redemption, right? He did it for you and me, obviously. So, um, Ephesians 1, 19 uh, and 20, what is exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. This is what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 
chapter 53. The arm of the Lord, the exceeding greatness of his power is revealed to those who believe the message. It's the gospel, guys, and receive salvation. So God makes the universe. He makes the earth. He does these things for, according to his will, but he redeemed us from the enemy, from the curse, because he loved us. He did it for us. He did it for our benefit. And we believe the gospel. We receive the benefits of the exceeding greatness of God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, 11. You've heard this too. I'm going to read it from the English Standard. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your, guys, right here, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This should be starting to get exciting. Guys, remember, God's power, the riches of his glory, never runs out. It's never existed. So if there is enough power to raise Jesus from the dead and break the curse of sin, you think there's enough power for him to rescue you from a situation? From a mountain that stands in your way? From cancer? Migraines, whatever you may be dealing with, whatever the enemy may be trying to do to slow you down, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have received the exceeding greatness of God's power. And that promise is now yours and it is timeless. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and, and, and it brought him, exalted him to the right hand of the Father. Um, so according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Verse 21, far above. Everybody say far above. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now, we see the word power again right here in verse 21. It's not any of those words we mentioned before. It's another one. It's another word. It's the word exousia. And it simply means authority. So when it says that Jesus was raised to a, to a position far above every principality and power, it's talking about the power of the enemy. It's talking about the power of Satan, power of the devil. He was given authority far above Satan. And guess what, guys? He dwells in you. And because he dwells in you, through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection... You have been given authority over the devil. Paul wants us to get a revelation of this. Now, understand, he did not give us powers. We're not God's superheroes flying around with powers. What he gave us was authority. When Adam and Eve sinned and mankind fell, Y'all know God didn't lose any power in that moment. But what, he, what God did lose in that moment and what Adam gave away was a channel through which he could express that power in the earth. Adam had authority over the earth through the Father. But he lost that authority when he sinned. He, he didn't just lose the authority. Actually, he gave it away. He gave it to Satan, right? So from Adam all the way to the resurrection... Satan was the one with authority in the earth, right? He was the only one walking around with the authority in the earth. But when Jesus rose from the dead, what did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He said, all power. Guys, it's, it's, it's that same word. It means authority. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. You know what Jesus turns around and does? He hands that authority to us. He gives it to us. Luke 19, I'm sorry, Luke, um, Luke chapter 10, verse 19. I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation. You guys have heard this scripture too. The, the ones I, that you know, I want you to hear it from a, from a different translation. Look at this. It says, now you understand that I have imparted to you all my authority to trample over his kingdom, the enemy's kingdom. You will trample upon every demon before you and overcome every power that Satan possesses. Absolutely nothing will be able to harm you as you walk in this authority. Guys, that should be exciting. 
We, we, we need to get it from here in, in, into here. We, we, we got to understand. He gave us all authority over Satan. Now, some may think, well, wouldn't it be better if he just like gave us power, gave us powers rather than, rather than authority? I would say no. Not at all. I, I read a, uh, an example I thought was really good. Uh, you, you may have heard this before, but when, when, when a policeman steps out in the street, he puts up his hand to the cars and the trucks, and he says, stop. Does he have, is he more powerful than the cars and trucks? <laughs> Not in the slightest. They could run him right over, right? Not in the slightest. But he has, that policeman has been given authority over all those cars and trucks. And most drivers, hopefully, they will, uh, they will not resist his authority because they understand that they will have to face the power that he represents if they violate him, if they violate his authority, being the local government. That local government's power, which is channeled through the authority of that policeman. So when he stands up in the street there, he doesn't say, in front of the cars and trucks, he doesn't say, stop in my name, Joe Policeman. Whatever his name is, mall cop. No. He says, what do they say in the old cartoons, the old shows? Stop in the name of the law. Right? And hopefully, usually, we stop. Right? Jesus has given us all authority over the power of the enemy. When we use the name of Jesus, guys, all hell has to come to a stop. Not because we're that powerful, but because we have been given the authority of heaven. Satan stops for our authority because he has already faced the power that we represent and he was soundly defeated. God channels all the power of heaven through the authority of the believer who understands the rights and privileges that come with being a member of the family of God. Verse 21, looking at it again. Jesus was exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. Guys, the name of Jesus is higher than any name, not only in this age, but in eternity. The name of Jesus is higher than any problem, any mountain, any attack, any sickness, any disease, any world leader, any crisis. The name of Jesus is higher. It trumps it all. That is why we as believers have the right, as Jesus commanded us, to cast out demons, to speak in other tongues, to take up serpents, to drink any deadly thing, and it won't harm us. And we can lay hands on the sick, and we can see them recover, because we've been given the authority of heaven through the name of Jesus. Paul's prayer is that we understand this. Looking at the very last sentence of this chapter, last two verses, last sentence. Verse 22, and he, the father, put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus to be the head over all things to the church. So just like verse 21 and verse 22, we see Jesus is put far above the power and authority of the enemy, and he was made the head of the church. So Jesus is far above, right? Satan is far below. Where are we? We're right up here in between, guys. We're right up here. Jesus here, Satan here, here we are. We, Jesus is the head. We're the body. And if he's our head and our authority, who has the authority over Satan? We do. Absolutely. Jesus gave us all authority over him. You don't have to ask God to get rid of the devil for you. You tell him to go in Jesus' name, and he has to go. Jesus defeated Satan at the resurrection and gave us the right to see the enemy flee. Guys, Satan hates the name of Jesus. It had never been used before the resurrection. Like uh, the Bible says, if Satan had only known what was going on, he would have never let, never let Jesus be crucified. But that moment that Jesus rose and bam, 
is given the name above all names and is suddenly at the right hand of the Father in the highest place. The enemy was trembling in his boots. Realized he made a terrible mistake. Every time the name of Jesus is mentioned, both hell and heaven take notice and remember. Hell trembles and heaven rejoices. And we have been left here on earth to stand in the place where Jesus stood so that people could come to know him as Savior, as healer, as protector, as provider. We have to learn to use our authority to see, firstly, ourselves set free so that we can ultimately see others set free around us as well and come to the saving knowledge, saving grace of Jesus. So the Father gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church. In verse 23, last thing, which is his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Guys, Jesus is the head, and we make up the rest, the fullness of his body. He is full with us. We are full with him. And if you know that without him, we are totally incomplete. And without us, his body is incomplete. The body of Christ, you and me, we make up the fullness of Jesus. Amen? I hope, uh, I hope somebody in here got a little bit of revelation. Just, your, your mind came in a little bit more into alignment with your spirit, what God's already placed in there, his wisdom. Hope you got some revelation and uh, enlightenment. Let's all stand up on our feet. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we close. As I love this. Paul gives, the, gives this description of the Father's plan from before the foundations of the earth till eternity. And then he wraps up everything in a prayer for us. And hopefully, guys, I, I told you chapters one through three are all about who we are in Christ. Guys, we've got to, if we knew who we were in Christ, our community would be a different place. America would be a different place. This world would be a different place if the church truly came into an understanding of who they were. This is what's holding us back at the moment. We have got to understand who we are and we've got to step in to that role. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, then understand, I'm not bringing condemnation to you whatsoever. I'm just saying that all these promises and all these things, it doesn't apply to your life right now. You're still a part of that fallen world. You have nothing to look forward to beyond this life. This is as good as it gets. But because of Jesus, you don't have to live with your sin and your guilt and your shame and, and, and all these things that you're carrying through your life. Jesus took all those things to the cross. All you've got to do is accept his sacrifice as your own. You lay down your life for him. The Bible says that you repent. You turn from your way of doing things. You say, Jesus, I'm so thankful for you that you saved me. I'm going to turn from my old ways, and I'm going to do things your way from this day forward. You tell him that I believe that you're the son of God, that you lived a sinless life, and you willingly went to that cross to save me from my sin, to save me from the curse. And you just tell him, you say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. And in the moment that happens, the Bible says you become a new creation. All that old junk and mess that you were carrying passes away. And you become part of this inheritance that we keep talking about. The timeless promises of God, they suddenly and immediately are yours. You can tap into them. Those promises, you can pray and stand in faith and you can bring them into this earthly realm. And you can stand in faith that everything you put your hand to will prosper. And you can walk in health and healing. And, and, and you can do everything that God created you to do. You can live a life of fulfillment and satisfaction. Not standing there day after day, working, working, going to bed, getting up and repeating this cycle every day and wondering what in the world is the point. God has designed you with purpose. There's things he wants you to do. And you won't be happy until you're doing it. Because it's what you were designed for. It's what you were created for, and he wants you to step into it. But the first step, the most important step, is surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. With every head bowed, if there's anybody here that says, I recognize right now I, that I have not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. He is not number one. He is not Lord of my life. I want you to lift your hand. Anybody in this place, 
Lift your hand up high and say, I need Jesus today. Anybody here? You may be watching online and you would say, you know what? I've prayed a prayer before, but I I recognize that I'm still living my life for myself. I never really repented. I never really turned from my sin. I didn't understand what this surrender thing was all about. Then this is your moment. And and, and I want you to to stop and I, I want you just to reflect for a moment about what it is that you're putting away what it is that you're laying at the foot of the cross so that you can make Jesus Lord. He's been exalted to the highest place, but you have the responsibility of putting him in the highest place of your life. We're gonna pray a prayer together. The Bible says you mean it with all your heart. You are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and, and you, are, you are adopted. As we talked about a few minutes ago, you are adopted into the family of God. You become God's very own. Every time you fall, you begin to stumble, he'll be there to help you up and encourage you and empower you. You will triumph over the enemy in this life. And yes, heaven will absolutely be a glorious destination for you when this life comes to an end. Let's pray together. You can just pray something like this or you can pray along with me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I've tried living this life my way, doing what I wanted, and I recognize that I'm an utter failure. I'm totally bankrupt without Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for loving me, for coming and taking my sin and my shame and my guilt and my sickness and disease, willingly taking it to that cross and willingly laying down your life for me. I receive you as my sacrifice. I receive the price that you paid as the payment for my sin, for the judgment that I deserved. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for the way I've lived my life. I repent. And today I declare that you are Lord and Savior of my life, and I will follow you every day to the end. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me. I can be everything that you created me to be. I will serve you with every breath that I take. I will trust you to the end in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662 890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277